This is labor, 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 Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode 27. Uh, we hope you're all staying safe and well and finding ways to continue fighting the class struggle through these difficult times. The latest wave of protests under the slogan Black Lives Matter have posed a range of political questions about police brutality and systemic racism. In our episode today, we'll be looking at how some of these questions have been approached within the organised labour movement with a particular focus on America. Uh, The episode consists of three sections. Uh, Ed is going to take us through some history, looking in particular at the role of black labour organisers and socialists like A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin in the US civil rights movement in the 1960s. He'll be looking at how they approached the struggle for racial equality as a class question and looking at how they confronted racism inside the working class and the trade union movement. Uh, Then Ellie will be discussing the presence in the labour movement of unions or so-called unions representing the police. Uh, This is a live issue in the Black Lives Matter struggle in the US with many anti-racist activists inside the labour movement demanding, quite rightly in our view, that cop unions are disaffiliated from the AFL-CIO, which is the kind of American equivalent of the TUC. Um, For some background on the wider question of historic conflicts between the police and organised labour, you might want to check out our 13th episode, Police versus Picket Lines, where we discuss the role of the police as an institution and its historic function in repressing workers' struggle. Um, Then finally, I'm going to be surveying some recent actions that US unions have taken as part of the Black Lives Matter struggle and discussing the potential for unions to leverage workers' power as part of the fight against racism. Um, My segment also features an excerpt of an interview um, that I did with Robert Cuffey, who's a trade unionist and socialist activist from Guyana, currently based in New York, which looks at some of these issues. So without further ado, here's Ed. It wouldn't be possible to give a comprehensive overview of the relationship between African-Americans and the US labour movement, uh, nor am I particularly uh, qualified to do so. Uh, There is a lot of uh, scholarship on the topic, uh, some of which we'll uh, link to in the episode description. Um, But in view of the re-emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement this year, we thought it'd be interesting to look at the interplay of uh, the civil rights movement and the labour movement uh, in previous decades in the States. Um, The first serious attempts by American unions to organise black workers occurred in the interwar period and particularly after the 1929 uh, Wall Street crash and the subsequent uh, depression. Uh, At this stage, many unions in the American Federation of Labour practised segregation in their own ranks uh, or ignored black workers altogether. Uh, With the founding of the Congress of Industrial Organisations in the 1930s, this began to change, although even some CIO officials were politically close to uh, white racist Democratic Party politicians in the southern states. Um, Some unions, uh, notably in mining, but also in other industries, uh, did organise black and white workers together. The first African-American-led union to affiliate to the AFL was the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, Um, who were railway workers, um, and that was founded by A. Philip Randolph in 1925. Randolph was chosen as leader by Porters in uh, a mass meeting in Harlem uh, because he didn't work for the Pullman Company, which was the major employer, and therefore he was immune from victimisation, as there had been uh, previous attempts, earlier attempts to to organise in the Pullman Company. 
He was known to the workers in part because he'd founded The Messenger alongside some of his comrades in the Socialist Party. Um, and that was a black sort of periodical magazine that was quite central to the Harlem Renaissance, the sort of cultural uh, movement of the time. Um, the union's other leaders included Milton Price Webster in Chicago, who was the son of Tennessee slaves who had bought their own freedom. Um, women also organised in the union, such as Rosina Tucker, who organised in the D.C. area, District of Columbia area and remained a labour and civil rights activist until her death, aged 105. Despite losing a lot of members during the Depression because of the mass unemployment, uh, the Brotherhood defeated the Pullman Company Union, the sort of sort of yellow union in the parlance of, uh, of the states, which means a kind of uh, an organisation that's sort of posing as an independent trade union, but is uh, in fact controlled by the employers. Um, their representatives were defeated by the uh, the Brotherhood's um, uh, representatives in union elections in 1935, which is effectively sort of the equivalent of, of gaining recognition, although the, the company didn't see quite see it that way. Um, many of the Brotherhood's leaders were involved in a proposed march on Washington in 1941, demanding desegregation of the armed forces and defence industries, um, this march ultimately was called off after government concessions, but it provided a model for the more famous March on Washington of 1963, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, there was much worker militancy in the US in the 1930s, um, but organising drives in the South often met with little success due to a combination of uh, the conservatism of union officials, uh, racist attitudes among, among white workers, uh, and a lack of resources going into those organising drives. Um, this meant that when the sort of post-Second World War civil rights movement kicked off, it did so in a context where organised labour was much weaker in the southern states than in the northern states. Um, also, a lot of uh, African-American uh, workers themselves had, had internally emigrated from the south to the north in the years before the war. Um, Unions did begin to move towards supporting civil rights activism, albeit often reluctantly. So the United Steelworkers, for example, set up a civil rights committee not long after the Second World War, but initially it was comprised entirely of uh, white members of the union. Um, in this context, it was often left to local branches and activists to take up the cause of civil rights in the labour movement. Uh, from the 1940s, for example, the Meatpacking Workers Union fought for integration, uh, not just in the workplace, but in all areas of uh, civil life as well. Um, when the civil rights movement began to take off in the South in the 1950s, uh, A. Philip Randolph and others of his generation, like his fellow socialist Bayard Rustin, uh, were still active in uh, leadership roles in uh, the union movement and also the civil rights movement. Um, Randall's emphasis on non-violent civil disobedience in the 40s was a, was a strong influence on uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his generation of activists and leaders of the civil rights movement. Uh, Randolph and Ruskin worked closely with King and others in the various civil disobedience campaigns against segregation that took place in the South uh, from the sort of mid-1950s through the early 1960s. Um, with this in mind, it's easy to see why such organisers would organise something like the great 1963 March on Washington. Um, and that's known primarily in history for uh, Dr King's famous I Have a Dream speech. 
the full name of the March on Washington was uh, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. In fact, initially, Randolph wanted it to be focused mainly on economic demands, but as the kind of organising group grew to um, to include more civil rights organisations and, and religious organisations, the emphasis sort of shifted onto, um, onto the sort of civil rights side. But if you listen to the speeches from the day and the sort of demands that were raised on the day, there was a very, very strong still kind of uh, emphasis on, on economic justice, um, secure jobs, higher wages for uh, African-American workers. Um, in the history of the sort of popular imagination, obviously the March on Washington is known for Dr. King's speech and in, in sometimes its wider sort of social demands are sort of relegated. Um, indeed, more widely, the fact that for the civil rights movement, the, fa the fight for economic justice was indivisible from the fight for political rights is often missing from sort of a lot of liberal retellings of that era. Uh, but that generation of civil rights leaders, influenced as they were by the kind of generation before them, Randolph and Rustin and others, uh, were unapologetically pro-worker in many different circumstances. And with that in mind, it's no coincidence that uh, when Dr. King was murdered in Memphis, Tennessee, on the 4th of April 1968, the reason why he was in the city uh, the last campaign he ever did was supporting a strike of mostly black sanitation workers in Memphis. The immediate cause of this strike was the deaths of Echo Cole and Robert Walker, two sanitation workers who were crushed to death in a garbage compactor. Uh, they weren't the first workers in the city to die in such a manner. Long-held grievances centred around horrendous working conditions and a disciplinarian and very racialized hierarchy in the workplace. Most of the sanitation workers were black. Most of the supervisors were white. The city's Democrat mayor uh, brought in white strike breakers after the, uh, after the sanitation workers walked out. And they were protected as, as usual by uh, police escorts. About a month into the strike, national civil rights leaders, including Rustin and Dr. King, um, started to appear in Memphis to sort of make speeches and help organise and rally the wider community behind the, the sanitation workers. Um, during demonstrations in support of the strike, the police murdered a 16-year-old African-American, Larry Payne. A few days after that, King returned to Memphis where he delivered his last speech, which is known as the I have been to the mountaintop speech. And that was the night before he himself was shot and killed by a white supremacist. Uh, within two weeks after Dr. King's death, um, there had been a huge outpouring, obviously, of grief. Um, and there'd been a huge outpouring of support for the workers themselves. And um, an enormous silent march through the city with uh, led by uh, Dr. King's widow, uh, civil rights leaders and uh, Walter Rufer, who was the uh, the president of the United Auto Workers, uh, who was a supporter himself of the civil rights movement. Um, the strike ended in victory for the sanitation workers and recognition uh, of their union. Um, it's That's just a snapshot, really, of the long links between organised labour and civil rights in the States. Um, and Daniel's going to talk a bit later about how organised labour, uh, industrial action, strike action is, is becoming part of the uh, the ongoing Black Lives Matter movement in the States now. 
but before that, Ellie is going to talk about the role of uh, police unions in the States. Over the last few months, in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and many others, we have seen an upsurge in struggle against police brutality from black Americans that has caused a global outpouring of solidarity, renewed support for the Black Lives Matter movement, and very importantly, much sharper criticisms of the police as an institution. Calls to abolish or defund the police are no longer seen as crazy fringe ideas, but rather a rational response to an out-of-control institution that shoots journalists with rubber bullets and attacks pensioners who dare to question their authority. During this time, we have also seen many parts of the labour movement question the role police unions play in the oppression of other sections of the working class and ask if the police should have any part of the mainstream trade union movement. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into our position on the police because for regular listeners I think it's already pretty obvious what we think about them and for anybody who hasn't already heard it we lay our position out pretty clearly in episode 13 police versus picket lines please do go back and take a listen if you haven't already but I will say this right at the top we at Labour Days believe the primary role of the police as an institution is to defend private property and oppress the working class any useful social role they may play is an accidental byproduct of that. They are not merely workers in uniform, and we do not think that they have any place in the organised labour movement. This is especially true in the United States, where police unions hold significant political power, which is almost exclusively wielded to squash so social progress and protect bad police. Police unions in the States are not merely used to fight for bread and butter issues like pay, but routinely block efforts to reform policing. In much the same way professional policing arose as a reaction to a newly forming urbanised working class, according to criminologist Samuel Walker, the modern police union movement originated largely in reaction to the civil rights movement and its criticism of police conduct during the 1960s. Any local union originated or at least became more militant in response to specific police community relations initiatives in the 1960s. Since then, they have been instrumental in opposing the formation of civilian review boards or undermining them, fighting against displaying names and badge numbers on officers' uniforms, resisting the rooting out of police misconduct, and famously, they get notoriously badged cops reinstated into the force. As Christian Williams puts it in Our Enemies in Blue, police organise as police, not as workers. A microcosm of the overall issue with police unions can be found in Minneapolis itself. Bob Kroll is the head of the Minneapolis Police Federation, the union representing more than 800 police officers in the city, and has been making waves in the wake of George Floyd's murder for his hostility towards police reform and often openly racist attitude. Kroll is a big Trump supporter who has spoken publicly about his fondness for Trump's law and order stance. Last year, he appeared at a ca campaign rally with Donald Trump and praised him as a wonderful president, saying the Obama administration and the handcuffing and oppression of police was despicable. He told the rally, the first thing President Trump did when he took office was turn that around and decided to start letting cops do their job. 
which is putting handcuffs on the criminals instead of us. Kroll is also openly hostile to Black Lives Matter, calling it a terrorist organisation. In 2016, he praised four Minneapolis police officers who walked out of a professional basketball game because players were wearing Black Lives Matter jerseys. In response to the murder of George Floyd, he described him as a violent criminal because he did prison time in an attempt to uh, legitimise the murder of an unarmed black man who was detained for a minor non-violent offence. He was also named in a 2007 racial discrimination lawsuit against the police department filed by five black officers, including Minneapolis's current chief of police, who alleged he called a black and Muslim officer a terrorist, and also that he wore a white supremacist group's patch on his motorcycle jacket. During his time on the force, there have been over 30 complaints filed against him. Kroll has been suspended and demoted by the department and has also been sued several times for use of excessive force. This isn't just shocking behaviour because Kroll is a bad guy who needs to be stripped of his position, but also speaks to something much more sinister. Kroll has been voted in by a large margin of his union membership for three terms in a row. Support for him in the union runs deeply, and the union itself holds a lot of sway amongst the police force. Speaking to The Guardian, former Minneapolis Chief of Police, Janae Hartu, said the Police Federation has, its, has historically had more influence over police culture than any police chief ever could. I was fought at every turn from bringing body cameras to the police department to having implicit bias training. According to The Guardian, the power of the union has often stood in the way of reform perpetuating old-school racialized policing tactics and shielding officers from accountability. Hartu attempted to make comprehensive reforms as police chief for five years, resulting in the strategy MPD 2.0, a new police model that puts strong emphasis on community engagement, transparency and public accountability. However, Hartu said it was consistently resisted and subverted by the union. This statement is also echoed by previous Minneapolis mayors as well. This isn't just a problem in Minneapolis either. Police unions all over America practice secret arbitration processes that see cops who have been dismissed for acts such as excessive use of force, using racial slurs, domestic violence and gross misconduct get back out onto the streets. They also write contracts in such a way as to protect killer cops. In Chicago, police officers have what is known as a calling off clause in their contract, meaning if they shoot someone in the line of duty, they and all the other officers present are allowed 24 hours to themselves before they are questioned. This effectively buys them a day to get their story straight and put pressure on any potentially shaky witnesses. Police unions have also made it so records of complaints against officers are next to impossible for the public to get hold of writing into contracts that records of misconduct complaints can only be held for up to five years. 
Police unions, at their best, protect members' rights over public safety, and at their worst, actively foster and cultivate white supremacy within the police. This couldn't be more serious, considering, according to former FBI Special Agent Michael German's report, white supremacist groups have infiltrated law enforcement agencies in every region of the United States over the last two decades. The dangers of police unions, not to mention the affront to basic principles of solidarity that they represent, is not going unnoticed by other sections of the labour movement. In early June, the Writers Guild of America East called for the removal of the International Union of Police Associations from the AFL-CIO, which represents them both, stating in a press release, as long as police unions continue to wield their collective bargaining power as a cudgel, preventing reforms and accountability, no one is safe. Therefore, we believe that police unions do not belong in the Labour coalition. The Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, also issued a resolution arguing police unions should be removed from the labour movement if they cannot address racism within their ranks. And the King County Labour Coalition told the Seattle police to confront its racism problem or be kicked out of the coalition. The AFL-CIO has acknowledged that police violence is a labour issue, although it refuses to take up the call to expel the International Union of Police Associations from its ranks. I should also point out, however, that while I believe expelling the IUPA from the AFL-CIO would be a step in the right direction, because I believe all police unions should be shunned from the organised labour movement, doing so would amount to a merely symbolic gesture, as many police unions are not affiliated with larger labour federations. For instance, the Fraternal Order of Police, an independent trade union, Um, organises more than 350,000 officers. Not to mention, regardless of whether they are in or out of the wider union movement, police unions are likely to retain their political power and sway over police forces. Speaking personally here, I believe the rank and file of these unions on the whole, are made up of a membership who do not want to see reform, either in the union or the wider police. Which ultimately brings me to the same conclusion that I always come to. The police have to be dismantled. We cannot tinker around the edges. I think that sentiment has... um, neatly brought me to the end of my whistle-stop section on police unions. So now I'm going to hand over to Daniel for our final segment of this episode. Without any further ado, here's Daniel. Hi, it's Daniel here um, with the last segment of today's show. Um, I'm going to be talking about an especially inspiring feature um, of the recent phase of the Black Lives Matter struggle in the US, which has been the workers' action we've seen take place as part of and in support of it. Although still embryonic and sometimes symbolic, these actions point the way towards a struggle for racial justice and equality able to call not only on the power of the march and the rally, but on the power of organised labour to shut down production, and towards a labour movement with horizons of struggle that involve not simply winning industrial disputes, but changing society. In both Minneapolis, the city where George Floyd was murdered, and New York, unionised bus workers took direct action by refusing to drive buses for arrestee transport during demonstrations and protests. These actions were taken unofficially, but in both cases the workers were backed up by their unions. 
A statement from the Amalgamated Transport Union, which organises bus drivers in Minneapolis, said, As our members, bus drivers, have the right to refuse work they consider dangerous or unsafe during the pandemic, so too Minneapolis bus drivers, our members, have the right to refuse the dangerous duty of transporting police to protests and arrested demonstrators away from these communities where many of the drivers live. So we can see there an explicit connection being made with the safety issues posed by the pandemic um, and some of the issues that have been thrown up in the Black Lives Matter struggle. Some of the ground had been prepared by some drivers organising a petition of their workmates, committing to refuse to transport RSDs. The petition reads, We are willing to do what we can to ensure our labour is not used to help the Minneapolis Police Department shut down calls for justice. And this approach of workers refusing to allow their labour and skills uh, to be put to use in the service of injustice or oppression links the Minneapolis bus drivers to historic struggles like those of the Australian construction workers who in the 1970s refused to work on environmentally damaging construction sites or sites that were gentrifying working class or indigenous communities. Uh, and for more on that movement, you can check out our ninth episode. Adam Birch, the Minneapolis bus driver who launched the petition, told Vice Magazine's motherboard platform, I was on my route on Wednesday evening and there was a message that came over transit control asking for a bus to transport police officers. I interpreted this as Minneapolis Police Department preparing for mass arrests, so the moment I had a layover I created a post on Facebook that said, I'm, me I'm a Metro Transit bus driver and I don't feel comfortable assisting the Minneapolis Police Department to make arrests. It got a lot of reaction, which was surprising, so I created a petition. Um, we've spoken a lot on Labour Days previously about the necessity to class struggle of a certain uh, kind of voluntaristic spirit, of a willingness to, figuratively speaking, light a fire. And that's definitely the spirit that Adam Birch, on, on an individual level, was displaying there. Similar action was taken in New York. In May, footage of a bus driver refusing to drive their bus went viral, and Transport Workers Union Local 100 later confirmed that refusing to transport RSDs was the official position of the union. The union tweeted, TWU Local 100 bus operators do not work for the NYPD. We transport the working families of NYC. All TWU operators should refuse to transport arrested protesters. Um, this union, TWU Local 100, has some history in this regard. They refused to transport arrested protesters during the Occupy Wall Street protests and later took NYPD to court to dispute the police's right to commandeer their buses. This kind of direct action illustrates the potential of workers' struggle not merely as a mechanism for bargaining for a better deal under capitalism, but as an instrument for changing society. When the working class as a collective refuses to allow our labour and skills to be used to further injustice, whether it's transporting RSDs, damaging the planet, making bombs and weaponry, sanctioning benefits claimants or anything else, that's when a new and better world comes into view. Workers make society move very literally and directly in the case of transport workers and that gives us the power to stop it moving, to reshape it and rebuild it. On Tuesday the 9th of June, organised Labour's role in the Black Lives Matter movement deepened yet further when dock workers in the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the ILWU, held a nine-minute work stoppage in West Coast ports, nine minutes being the amount of time that police officer Derek Chauvin had his, neck, had his knee on George Floyd's neck. 
the ILWU has a proud tradition of taking this kind of action. Its members refused to handle ships from apartheid South Africa and struck against the Iraq war. And that's part of a global tradition of dock workers' direct action against oppression and tyranny, which recently includes Italian dock workers in 2019 and again this year, refusing to load military cargo bound for the Saudi Arabian regime. Members of the International Longshoremen's Association, the ILA, another dockers union, were also involved in the 9th of June action. The ILWU also has its own experiences of police brutality, having had six of its members murdered by police during the 1934 general strike in San Francisco, part of the same nationwide wave of workers' struggle that also saw mass strikes in Toledo and Minneapolis. I had to get that in there. Check out episode 12. The ILWU holds an annual day of action on the 5th of July, the anniversary of those murders, to remember Bloody Thursday. Zach Patton, a dock worker and member of ILWU's Local 23 in Washington, told Labour Notes, Taking action and stopping work, even symbolically, has its own value, but it also forces people to talk about the issue at work. That's a key dynamic here too. It's not only about using the power workers have in the workplace to express support for a movement happening in society, it's about bringing the issues, questions and challenges the movement is raising into the workplace itself. To speak personally for a moment, where I work there's a 9% ethnicity pay gap amongst directly employed staff, so um, the average directly employed TFL uh, worker of colour will be paid uh, 9% less than the average directly employed uh, white TFL worker. Um, Following the latest wave of BLM protests in this country, there's been increased awareness and discussion of that within our union, and a number of us are working to make demands for racial justice and levelling up more central to how our union organises in the workplace and what we fight for. Following the 9th of June action, the ILWU stepped up from a night-minute work stoppage to a full strike, organised on the 19th of June, to coincide with Juneteenth. Uh, Juneteenth marks the abolition of slavery in Texas on the 19th of June in 1865, the last state to abolish slavery, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued. Ports across the USA were shut down, with the action being called on the same day as an official strike in a contract dispute to avoid any possible legal ramifications, given restrictions in US labour law on political strikes. Um, This was an important and necessary precaution for the ILWU, given the threat of enormous fines running to nearly $100 million hanging over it due to ongoing court proceedings brought against it by a multinational corporation alleging actions that ILWU members took in 2012 breached laws on secondary action, aka solidarity strikes. Um, In advance of the Juneteenth strike, dock worker and ILWU activist Clarence Thomas told Jacobin magazine, All 29 ports on the West Coast will be shut down by the ILWU on Juneteenth for eight hours to demand an end to white supremacy, an end to police terror and an end to the plans to privatise the Port of Oakland, which would take away essential jobs for working class African Americans in the Bay Area. And we're calling on unions across the country to join us in this action on Juneteenth. It's time. Labour must begin to take a lead in the fight against racist police terror. Elsewhere in the same interview, Thomas said, Fighting police murders and white supremacy is a class question. Let's not forget that the vast majority of black people and the vast majority of victims of police repression are working class. For many years now, ILWU and Local 10 in particular has been protesting the racist policing of African Americans. And we understand that the way these murders can be stopped is when there are economic consequences. 
The working class has leverage and we need to use it. We think that the most effective way to stop police terror is by the working class taking action at the point of production. If the working class is going to be heard, Labour must shut it down. More recently, on the 20th of July, a coalition of unions and community organisations led by the Service Employees International Union, the SEIU, uh, organised a nationwide day of action under the banner Strike for Black Lives, which saw work stoppages and protests in cities across the USA, including by fast food workers who'd previously struck as part of the Fight for $15 movement. Uh, for UK listeners who might not be familiar with the SEIU, uh, it's a bit of a behemoth as far as US unions go, at least in terms of its size and relative industrial weight. Um, imagine if Unite and Unison merged and you're probably kind of somewhere in the right territory in institutional terms. The demands of the strike for black lives also highlighted the disproportionate impact of the COVID-19 pandemic pandemic on black workers in frontline essential services, demanding full sick pay, improved healthcare provision, adequate PPE and the right to organise at work. Other unions supporting the strike included the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the American Federation of Teachers, United Food and Commercial Workers, the Amalgamated Transport Union, who we mentioned earlier in the context of Minneapolis Bus Workers Action, and many more. Tress Andrews, a care worker in a Detroit retirement home and an SEIU activist, told the Associated Press, we've got the coronavirus going on, plus we've got this thing with racism going on. They're tied together like some type of segregation, like we didn't have our ancestors and Martin Luther King fighting against this type of thing. It's still alive out here and it's about time somebody was held accountable. It's time to take action. Uh, That same Associated Press article went on to say, the strike continues a decades-old labour movement tradition. Most notably, organisers have drawn inspiration from the Memphis sanitation workers' strike over low wages, benefits disparity between black and white employees, and inhumane working conditions that contributed to the deaths of two black workers in 1968. At the end of that two-month strike, some 1,300 mostly black sanitation workers bargained collectively for better wages. Um, That Memphis sanitation workers strike really repays further study. It's full of excellent lessons on workplace organising and how to build an effective strike campaign. And it's also a particularly inspiring example of approaching anti-racism as a class issue. It was during his work to support that strike that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And its story is told in the excellent film, At the River I Stand, which I'd encourage all Labour Day's listeners to seek out and watch. Um, So that was a brief, uh, very brief survey of some recent actions taken by US workers and their unions as part of the Black Lives Matter struggle. Um, That struggle is international. And as workers and trade unionists in Britain, we need to rise to this challenge ourselves and find ways of organising our own strikes for black lives. Our frankly draconian anti-union laws represent a real obstacle to that, but it's one we have to overcome. Maybe we can follow the ILWU's example and call action in official disputes that we present with anti-racist messaging. Maybe we can build official disputes around issues of racial inequality at work, um, like ethnicity pay gaps, which, as I mentioned earlier, is an issue in my workplace. And maybe in places where we have the confidence and organisation, we can take action in defiance of those laws, as we've seen some workers do over safety issues during the COVID-19 pandemic. However we build towards it, the task is urgent. As Clarence Thomas put it, the working class has leverage, we need to use it. 
Um, we're going to end my segment today with an excerpt of an interview I recently did with Robert Cuffey um, discussing the role of organised labour in the recent uh, Black Lives Matter uprising. Robert mentions a number of the strikes I've talked about and also gives his view on how to build a class struggle, anti-racist, socialist politics. Um, Robert's a Guyanese socialist currently based in New York, where he's a, a public sector worker and a trade union activist. He's a member of the Socialist Workers Alliance of Guyana and the Democratic Socialists of America, the DSA, in the United States. Um, what we're about to play you comes from a much longer interview which also discusses some of the wider political questions around Black Lives Matter, the upcoming US presidential election, and class struggle, both historical and contemporary, in Guyana. So if you're interested in listening to the whole thing, there'll be a link to that in the episode description. Um, at the point where we drop in, um, Robert is discussing whether there's a tension between demands arising from particular sections of the working class that experience specific oppression and so-called class-wide demands. So uh, to end the segment today, here's Robert. Right. And that's something that's being debated and has been debated over the last few years. But it's also a much older question on the left, right, as to how do demands arising out of the needs of particular parts of the working class that are oppressed along lines of race and gender relate to the bigger class-wide demands. And there are people who say that, you know, well, we need a class-wide program um, and the other demands need to be subsumed to that. I would argue that the path to universality and to universal demands comes through winning the wider working class to the fight for these particular demands, because as particular as these demands are, they have an underlying class content to them. The police kill black people disproportionately, yes, but the role of the police in our society ultimately is to keep the working class in check. And a lot of people have a conception of labor should take the lead, that the organized labor should take the lead in these fights. And we can tell by studying the actually existing labor movement in the United States that they're not in a place where they are going to use the weapon of a general strike to take the lead. But we have seen, on the other hand, that when Black people have gotten into the streets and burned things down and launched this great protest movement, that the unions have followed by issuing statements of solidarity in the way in which they didn't do in 2014 and 2015 during the initial Black Lives Matter uprising. We've seen bus drivers, both in Minneapolis and New York City, refuse to transport arrested protesters in real acts of solidarity. And we've actually seen some of the unions take meaningful, if symbolic, steps, like the International Longshore Workers Union um, held a day of action for George Floyd and prior to that, uh, where they shut down all of the ports in the country. And prior to that, they held... Um, an eight-minute, 46-second work stoppage to symbolize the amount of time Officer Chauvin had on Floyd's neck. Um, and most recently, on the 18th, the, the SEIU Service uh, Employees Industry Union held a day of action under the banner Strike for Black Lives. So I think if you study history clearly, it shows that the way forward on these questions and how to meld the questions of how to fight against oppression and class exploitation is that you follow the lead of the most oppressed layers of the working class because they have less invested in the system and the system has less to give us. And even the most simple demand 
of the Black Lives Matter movement to stop killing black people has not been met by this system. And even in the midst of this rebellion, they've continued to, to kill black people with impunity. After the rebellion was launched, they killed David McAtee, they killed Brayshard Brooks in Atlanta. So I think continuing to both unearth what the most pressing demands are for the most oppressed layers of the working class and following their lead and struggle is what needs to be happening. And this needs to be differentiated from the tokenistic version of following black leadership, where you follow black leadership simply because they're black and you don't actually interrogate the political program on which you're following. Because for all intents and purposes, we could follow the Congressional Black Caucus, right? If we follow the Congressional Black Caucus, we'd be following them into kneeling with Nancy Pelosi while wearing Kente cloth scars, and that would get us nowhere. We can both appreciate the fact that they were forced to do that by this struggle, and that municipalities are forced to cede space for Black Lives Matter to be painted across streets, while understanding that the system is so limited in what it has to offer working class and oppressed people that despite a mass movement that's literally shifted consciousness on the police in this country, we have not seen any concomitant or resulting material changes in the mm -hmm. life of black and working class people. What we've actually seen in response to the economic crisis, in response to the public health crisis of COVID and the crisis of police terror is austerity budgets being passed on a federal, state, and municipal level, which continue to disproportionately harm the working class, people of color, and black people most of all. So the next question I wanted to ask you is about something that you've um, already mentioned there, which was the kind of appearance on the stage uh, in this latest phase of the movement of organized labor as a kind of strategic anti-racist actor to, to, to some extent. And you mentioned a couple of the um, unions and, and, and strikes that I wanted to ask you about, the ILWU, which obviously has uh, its own kind of particular tradition of taking industrial action around sort of broadly political questions. And then we saw, as, as you said, the SEIU-led um, Strike for Black Lives um, Day of Action last week. So I wondered if you could say um, a little bit more about that. Firstly, um, you know, if, 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 if you know, like, what what's the kind of... Um, like, like, how are those strikes sort of decided upon? Because obviously there's a lot of legal restrictions um, in the US, as, as there are here in the UK too, on, on taking, on, on striking around political issues. So how are some of those um, legal challenges confronted? Um, and then secondly, um, are, the, are the questions of um, uh, sort of racial inequality and racial injustice being kind of pursued um, on the terrain of the labor movement itself, you know, are there um, rank and file caucuses and reform caucuses in um, unions that are sort of taking these issues up as sort of democratic questions inside trade unions? Yeah, so I, I guess on the first question about the legal restrictions, I'll have to plead ignorance about the legal terrain in the UK about political strikes. I don't think we have something similar or analogous in the United States. I can say, for example, in New York State, uh, we have a law called the Taylor Law, which um, imposes a prohibition on public sector workers going on strike and taking certain job actions. So that's definitely been limiting, right? Because public sector workers in New York State do things like run the subways, 
Yeah. And um, the last time the workers, the subway workers went on strike in 2005, they all got fined for being on strike and the leader of their union was jailed. Yeah, Roger Toussaint, right? Right. So, yeah. so Toussaint was jailed and the consequences are that, you know, people saw that to say, man, if we go on strike, we're really taking a big risk. So what has happened is that the public sector unions here in New York have instead um, tried to build a series of actions or endorse actions, right? So I, one of the marches I've been to in the recent past was um, Caribbean People for Black Lives Matter and uh, um, SEIU 1199 Union, which represents workers in the healthcare industry, many of whom are from a Caribbean and West Indian background, turned out for that march. They produced signs with the names and pictures of Breonna Taylor and um, George Floyd, for example. But in my opinion, I think what the, the union movement is doing is trying to do as much as they can to be a valve to release pressure within the ranks of the movement, right? So they can say we've done something because this historical moment demands that everyone has done something. I was on a call with some people from the Review of African Political Economy and they were talking about how all even like, you know, the central banks and so on in the UK are issuing uh, Black Lives Matter statements. And the unions are doing the same, but because they're trapped with this historical legacy of being organizations of struggle, they have to do a bit more. And what they're doing are symbolic gestures. They're doing one-day strikes. But at no point are they talking about launching the working class's nuclear weapon, which is a general strike, a general strike for black lives, a general strike where working class people stay out and withhold our labor until we win specific demands that's do you not think the conditions exist do you think the conditions exist for that if 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 a union kind of issued that as a call do you think that would be do you think it would have grip and traction well i think for example um if within any union a rank and file caucus raises a uh, motion to say we call on the leadership of our union and the Central Labor Council to which it demands to go on strike on this particular day in support of the Black Lives Matter struggle that the existing bodies of people within the ranks will vote that motion up, right? And it's a question then of how is the pressure kept up so that such a motion reaches the um, American Federation of Labor, Central Industrial, uh, organizer, AFL-CIO, the top leadership body to actually get that built. And I don't think that our labor lieutenants at this time want to further upset the balance of capitalism because it's clear that capitalism at this point is in a moment of instability, right? We yeah. have millions of people unemployed, the economy is tanking, oil production, they don't even have places to store the oil because demand is so low. And I don't think they want to really upset the balance. Um, I think one indicative example that I've been pointing to is that of the AFL-CIO itself, whose head Richard Trumpka was on Fox News of all places talking about how the protests in Minneapolis were violent and reprehensible and all these things. And maybe a day later, the protests in Washington, D.C. attacked and burned down the AFL-CIO's headquarters. And then 
this is the moment labor started issuing statements in support of the rebellion, right? And I think the dynamic is that the struggle in the streets is in many ways leading the struggle in the workplaces. And as Marxists, we have an orthodox, reflexive reaction to say, no, it's the organized labor that should be leading things. And that seems inevitable because the Black Lives Matter movement doesn't have an official structure, right? We don't have a federal Black Lives Matter movement that then um, has state and city components that relate to it. It's a much more formless, decentralized thing that we have going where like in New York, we have Black Lives Matter Greater New York and we got Black Lives Matter Brooklyn and so on and so forth. But I think the challenge should certainly be made within the labor movement, even if we don't see um, mass actions by the labor movement as agitational and actionable in this particular moment. It's still something to propagandize for and to tell people this is a good idea. Why aren't we fighting for it? And what does it indicate about our current union leadership that um, they're not leading the fight on this? So to then pivot to the question of the rank and file caucuses. So the rank and file caucuses and other dissidents within the unions have been pushing these things and raising these questions. So within my union, which is the um, District Council 37, which represents city employees, I'm within Local 371, and we're in this federated union of many locals. And we've had people who work, for example, within the mayor's office lead Black Lives Matter marches. We've launched petitions in support of Black lives, and we've tried to highlight the ways in which our jobs and the function we play. For example, I work within child welfare. We've tried to highlight the way in which the child welfare system disproportionately impacts people of color. So that work is being done, but again, the leadership of the unions have captive the resources of the working class. They hold captive the dues we pay into the organizations, and they hold captive just even things like the membership list, right? To which you could send out something that says, show up on Monday, and this is a thing actually happening, show up on Monday for the National Teachers Day of Action against the in-person reopening of schools. And because they're the leaders and they're supposedly elected but they act like a self-appointed body removed from the membership, the challenge is how do we as the rank and file both build solidarity across unions within our workplace, but also challenge the leadership to do something more than issue a symbolic statement. This is labor, 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 labor. Labor Days was presented by Ed Mustill, Daniel Randall, and Ellie Clark. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith, and the producer was Liam McNulty. Download Labor Days wherever you get your podcasts, and remember to subscribe and leave a review. Follow Labor Days on all your favourite social media platforms, Labor Days on Facebook, and at Labor underscore Days on Twitter. Twitter.